0: I was thoroughly blessed by Helen's preaching last week, and I'm sure many of you were. It's, it's a, a topic that's close to my heart, and, and to have Helen lay out something so clearly and and um, with such anointing was a real blessing to me. So when Ant gave me a choice this morning to continue in the theme of Colossians that we're working with at the moment, or to, to speak about the presence of God, um, it's a joy to speak about the presence of God. And... I said to Ant, I'm I'm quite nervous this morning preaching, and I'm not normally as nervous as I am because I'm I'm really hoping to engage your hearts as much as your heads, and possibly more than your heads this morning, Um, because what I would like to have happen this morning is for you to be encouraged and exhorted to seek the presence of God. We spoke about what it means last week, but I want to encourage you to to hunger for the presence of God, both individually and corporately in the church and wherever you are, to, to have that as a an absolute desire and a, and a burning desire in your heart, And I just want to, to, to and, and some of the stuff I'm sharing this morning, I shared about three years ago here. So if you've remembered that good on you, hopefully this will be a reminder and stir you. But it, it's something that I believe is, is worth speaking about again. And just to, to add a word to that, the presence of God, I'd like to just define for you what I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about the manifest presence of God. When Helen shared with us last week, she shared that God is omnipresent, He's everywhere. And that he's imminent and he's close to us. But the reality is we're not always aware of that. We're not always walking in the presence of God. Sometimes we experience the manifest presence of God. Sometimes that because God sovereignly decides to do that. In the Old Testament, he would appear to people, and that was always an incredible experience that changed the circumstances and changed their life. And sometimes We seek the presence of God, and He shows Himself to us. I always use simple examples when I preach, and and I'm a a teacher. Uh, I don't do much teaching nowadays. They've punished me by putting me in the office and making me run a school, but I still get into the classroom sometimes. And um, sometimes I do cover for my teachers when they're not available, and I go to a class where I'm not normally and I like to arrive before the students. And sometimes I'm in the classroom hanging around somewhere looking at the displays on the wall and so forth. And students are waiting outside or coming in and they don't know that I'm there. I am there, but they don't know it. And so they behave in a certain way. Not always bad, but they behave in a certain way until for whatever reason my presence is revealed. I come from behind the doorway. I've been looking at the wall saying, And when my presence is revealed and my presence is manifest, their behavior sometimes is different. I've always been there, but now they're aware of my presence. God is always around us, but we're not always aware of His presence for various reasons, and I want to talk about that this morning. Because I want to encourage you to to seek to walk in His presence and to live in His presence in His manifest presence, being aware of His presence. We appear to have a, a natural inclination to, to ration things that are precious, um, often because they're difficult to obtain or they're very expensive. Um, when we first moved to this country, before we found out there was a place called the Bok and Rose shop, a South African delicacy called biltong was very precious to us. It's a disgusting thing for people who don't come from South Africa. It's dried and salted and spiced meat which it's, it's wind-dried, and, and we thrive on it, and a lot of people go yuck when they hear about it. But when we used to get, when we first arrived here 20 years ago, when someone brought us some of that, it would be preciously protected and, and shared out jealously. And I have to be honest, sometimes one or the other of us, and I'm not looking at Sandra too directly, would sneak down to wherever it was stored And when the other one of us got there, there would be less than there had been before because we ration things out and we're cautious in the way that we spend that. And sometimes I believe we almost are inclined to ration that experience of being in the presence of God in a similar kind of way. We reserve it for a great worship session at church when corporately we become aware of God's presence and we respond and that's fantastic. We reserve it for a time of communion when we are made aware and, and, and we, we, we sense the, the, the weight of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Um, or in a special time of, of God touching our lives, we healed to something, something miraculous happens in our lives. There, there is a significant happening and we experience the presence of God and it's wonderful. But we don't see it as something every day. We don't see it as something that we experience as part of our everyday life. I had been a Christian for many years before I became aware of the fact that I could actually interact with God in an intimate way. And I'd begun, I was in a, I might have shared this before, I was in a church of quite conservative people, the choir all had blue hair, um, and they sang to an organ And they would let us, young people, um, as we were at that stage, uh, play choruses in the evening on a guitar. And at that time, I had been seeking God's face, and I'd been hearing about this thing about the Holy Spirit filling up your life and overflowing and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, and, And coming from the background I came from, I was quite skeptical, but I began to be challenged, and I began to say to God, okay, if this is real, then I need you to show me what I need to do. And... One evening, we were leading our choruses, as, as we called it. We didn't call it leading worship. We were leading our choruses, and, and the people with the blue hair were no longer in the choir. They were sitting in front of us, um, and, and we were doing our thing. I have nothing against blue hair, by the way, um, But suddenly, I became aware of the presence of God, and we all became aware of the presence of God in a way that I'd never experienced before. There was a sense that He was right there with us in the room to the extent that I was scared to look behind me. And people who had not experienced in their lives began to come out of the pews and fall on their knees and begin to weep. And I went, what on earth is happening here? But it was good. It was kind of scary but it was good, and that's when I began to seek people who could teach me, as Helen taught us so wonderfully last week about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and came to that wonderful joy of knowing that the fullness of God could dwell in me, and that, as the Bible speaks about it, rivers of living water could flow through my life and out of my life. But we, we tend to be cautious and, and ration these things, and I want us to have a perspective of how God feels about manifesting his presence in our lives and us manifesting our presence in his lives and to do that I always tend to go back to the beginning because if we want to know where God's heading it's good to know what his original plan was because as we sang this morning in that wonderful song you stay the same through the ages your love never changes God hasn't changed his plan God has fulfilled his plan he hasn't changed his plan so if I want to have a look at how God wants to be with me, i look at how He wanted to be with Adam and Eve before mankind messed things up. And when I look at creation, and I'm not going to go there because it's a familiar story, but it's not a coldly scientific process. There was a whole bunch of science going on in creation, guys. The level of physics and chemistry and biology were astounding and phenomenal. God is the ultimate scientist. He, he speaks science, and things come into being. But it wasn't a clinical process. When, when I read about God creating and God working on the earth, at the end of every day God surveys what he does and he gives an emotional response. He says it's good and God's standards are extreme. <laughs> so it was very good. And God is working hard to create this wonderful place for His people to be in because He wants something enjoyable and fun and exciting and diverse for Adam and Eve to be in. Because in that environment, if we look at what happens through the whole of our uh, recording of the Scriptures, God wants to interact with mankind. He creates Adam and Eve with free will and, and the ability to mess up simply so that they can choose to love Him and be with Him and his desire was to be in fellowship and friendship with them on a daily basis not rationed not scheduled just like friends just like family that was the desire that i see coming through in the way that god interacts and it's revealed most of all when they break it sometimes you don't know what you've got till you lose it and i want to pick up on a scripture that right in the beginning, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. Now the sad part of that is the fact that they hid from God. But the exciting part is God came to walk with them and expected them to come and share with Him. He called out to them, Why aren't you here? And I have a a picture in my mind that normally when God came to walk in the cool living, they would run to him as children run to a parent, excited to share their day with him and to ask him about his day. That sounds weird. Why would God want to tell Adam and Eve about his day? Why did God create man? To interact, to have fellowship, to have people who chose to love him, to have that friendship To have something that he could not design and make for himself, the unconditional free will love of people who chose to be in his presence, who wanted to be with him. That's what he wanted. He's not changed. You stay the same through the ages. Your love never changes. That's what he wants at the end. When this is all what we're doing on this earth at the moment has come to the point that God brings the final plan into play, We will be with Him in eternity. We will be with Him. We will see Him face to face. We will interact with Him socially and as a family with joy and with great peace in our hearts. Because that's what we were built to do. We were built to be supernatural God people in His environment, interacting with Him, and it broke. So God set about fixing it. God set about making it possible to restore that. And what I want to urge you to think about this morning and to have drop into your heart, God's plan for intimacy with you and to share His presence with you is not for a time yet to come when you're lucky enough to die and go to heaven. It's for now. A singer that I've enjoyed listening to for many years is a lady called Amy Grant, and she sings a song that says, In a little while we'll be with the Father. Can't you see Him smile? In a little while, we'll be with the Father. In a while, we're just here to learn to love Him. We'll be home in just a little while. We will be home eventually, but we're here to learn to love Him now. It's not something to be delayed. It's not something to be rationed and to sneak into the kitchen to steal a piece of bultong in the middle of the night. To just have a Sunday morning where everything clicks together and we have the presence of God filling us up and we, and we are moved to respond to that. It's meant to be an everyday thing that we seek after. He wants, he wants, he wants to interact with us. How do I know this? How can I say this with so much confidence? Because he doesn't just lay it out in, a, in an essay in the Bible. I can say this without fear of being contradicted because I am a father. And God describes himself frequently in Scripture as father. Now, I'm not—I think I'm a reasonable father, but I'm not the best in the world, but I know how much I love my children, and I know how much I want to interact with them. I don't want to be in a relationship with them where they are distant, and all I get is a WhatsApp every now and then. The joy of my life is being with my children— interacting with them, speaking to them, eating with them, fellowshipping with them. That brings me great joy. They've grown up now. My daughter's moved out. She's living in a flat in Uxbridge, and she's in Israel at the moment, and Eilat's having a wonderful time scuba diving. When I come home of a day and I see her car parked outside, my heart jumps. I'm going to see her. I'm gonna hug her, I'm gonna greet her, I'm gonna have a conversation with her. I long for that. I say to her sometimes, okay, you've proved all this adult stuff, now forget that and come home and live with dad. Because that's what I what I want. My son still lives with us, and my children are part of the boomerang generation. They go and they come back and they go and they come back. Again, union they come back, then they go somewhere else and they come back. And currently he's living with us. And to be honest with you, sometimes I get a bit frustrated. Because sometimes, even though he's in his 20s, because he's living at home, he does things like a teenager and there's stuff all over the place. And I think it used to be much more tidy when he was at university. But I'm going to be devastated when he moves out. It's going to be a good thing. It's going to be an adult thing. It's going to be the right thing. But I am going to miss him. And I don't want a relationship with my children where once a day at a specific time they send me a WhatsApp and say, all is well, Dad. Cheers. I want to have spontaneous interaction with them, and that's what my heavenly Father wants with me. Not just a scheduled relationship that happens on Sunday mornings and for 15 minutes in the evening or whenever you have your quiet time, whatever. He wants to have that spontaneous relationship in which we interact with Him, not just formally. You know, religion has has kind of reduced (laughs) what we do sometimes into what I call a spiritual board game. This is how many Christians live their lives. There are rules for the board game. It's called the law, and Ant's taught us that we're free from the law. But for many people, it's trying to get as close to the Ten Commandments as they can. There are strategies and moves in the board game. Those are the traditions and practices that we have in religious Christianity. If I just do that and do that and do that, I'm playing the game. There's an environment that it happens in you. know, nowadays, a lot of the games the young people play are in in a a virtual environment. And we have our environment in which you play the game that is determined by the architecture of our church, what we wear, the style of music that we have, and whatever it might be. And then you, you have how you score in the game. It's the number of converts, how effective your evangelical program is, how big your church is. And then how do you win? You die and you go to heaven. That's the board game that many Christians play. That's, that's, we, we, we have this environment that we create of tradition and, and, and moves the traditions and values and things. And as long as we're doing that, we're okay. Now, God's not going to walk away from me because of that. But there's so much more that we intended to have. I often say to my children, can you imagine if I was about to make a journey to Edinburgh? My children have bought us tickets for the Edinburgh tattoo in August and we're going to be traveling up. And somebody heard you going, we're going to Edinburgh, and they came along and said to me, Clive, to facilitate your journey because we really care for you, I'm giving you a Mercedes SLK. Hmm. Please, if there's anybody here (laughs) or listening to the podcast, how would it be if I then, on the morning that I was due to go to Edinburgh, got up in the morning, pushed the SLK out of the driveway into the road, got behind it, and started pushing it to Edinburgh, you'd think I was mad. Because after a while, somebody would stop me and say, why are you doing that? And I'd say, well, someone's given me this and I'm going to Edinburgh. And they'd say, well, get in, it's got an engine. And if I then got in and shoved it in first and began driving at 20 miles an hour and first, somebody would stop me and say, it's got more gears. It's got aircon. it's got a sound system, it's got headlights, it's got all these things. This is part of what's been given to you. Guys, If we are living this cold board game of a relationship with God, we're missing out on what He really has given us in salvation. He's given us a life that can be filled with His presence, with the joy and the power and the teaching and the wisdom that can go with that. It's not meant to be a cold, dry thing where you're scoring points. God is not sitting up in heaven saying, I need to reach X number of converts and then I'll be happy. Every person that comes in the kingdom, it says, there is rejoicing in heaven over every sinner that is saved. It says God dances over us with joy. He spins, the word is ghoul in Hebrew. He spins around, clamorously foolish with glee, over every person that comes into the kingdom. God is excited about you coming into his family. He wants you to be excited about being with him. You're allowed you're allowed to enjoy it. You're allowed to get excited about it. You're allowed to look forward to it. It's not rationed. I, I was in a, at a little Christian school many, many years ago, and we used to write songs together in the music class, and we wrote a song, Do You Need a Friend? I'll share my best with you, because there's enough of Him to go around. There's plenty of God. There's plenty of His presence. And He wants us to share it. I want to just touch on... Helen spoke to us last week, and she spoke about the significance of the veil being torn when Jesus died. You know, because of sin and because the relationship with God breaking down through what Adam and Eve brought into the world and what everybody else continued doing, we mustn't just blame them because if they didn't do it, one of us would have done it. But because of that, God had to protect mankind from His presence. The pure glory of God was dangerous for sinful people. We just weren't able to be in it so when God begins to appear to the people of Israel in the desert he has to build have them build a tabernacle a tent in which God brings his presence down but protects them from being directly in his presence and only the high priest on the day of atonement could go fully dressed in his outfit with a rope that Helen spoke about to be dragged out of the holy of holies if he died in there and bells around the bottom so they could hear it if he was still alive in God's presence could go in and that veil persisted right to the temple in Jerusalem on the day that Jesus died, at the time that he died, that veil was torn. It was torn from top to bottom, and it's the first thing that God does, the first thing that he does when Jesus dies. That's a father who can't wait to get in touch with his children again. Jesus dies. Sin is paid for. God's presence is open to all of us, and God doesn't wait to write us a story 2,000 years later. He just rips that veil, and he steps out of the Holy of Holies. If you read, it says that people came out of their graves. Holy people, let me read it to you. I've got it here somewhere. In Matthew chapter 27 verse 51, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life, and they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. The presence of God, God rips away that veil and He steps out amongst people, and the earth shakes and rocks split and the dead rise because God in all of His glory is no longer having to keep us at a distance, we can be in His presence, and not only can we, He wants us in His presence. He doesn't say, guys, come tear the veil. He doesn't send us an instruction booklet, this is how to remove a veil. He just rips it apart, and He walks out in all of His glory, not restrained. You know, I, we... we, we Every picture we see of Jesus painted in the Middle Ages, is, you know, and then the Renaissance has got him with this very—he always sort of looks like that, or he looks sad, like that. And so we've got this picture of God as being this this, this dure, legalistic judge, sitting at the back of with a long wig on and a, and a wooden mallet to bang on the table. God created us in his image to rejoice in the same things. God is wonderful, fun, happy, rejoicing, emotional, responsive, caring, tender. And God seeks us out and wants us in. Guys, don't just come to church on Sunday morning looking for God here. He's inside of you. He's waiting for you to turn to Him and speak to Him in the midst of your best moment of the day and in the midst of your most embarrassing, worst moment when you want nobody else to know what you're up to. That's when you need to speak to Him as well. That's what He's done through Jesus. That's what He's brought back into our domain. And instead, what we tend to do is we build our own veils. We construct our own veils. We create our own veils that separate us from God. Here's some of the examples. Busyness. I just don't have time. You see, for me to be a good person and for everybody to accept me, I've got to have a certain standard in society, and I've got certain things I need to do, and socially in my group of people I've got things to do. So God needs to understand. I've got my job. I've got the social things I do. I've got my children. and, And so I can't spend that much time with Him. And we build a veil of busyness. Every now and then we part the veil and we give God his allocation of time. Religion. We just go through the motions. And I always say religion's like a dummy. When you give a baby a dummy, he thinks he's getting food. That's why he shuts up. He's wailing along, he's wailing along, and you put a piece of rubber in his mouth and he's happy. It's not the rubber in his mouth that makes him happy. He's used to getting some food with that, so you stick it in his mind, says this must be good, this is food, so he stops. And religion's like a dummy. I need God. Well, here's some tradition. I need God. Here's some kind of ritual that you can do. I need to fill this aching space inside of me. Well, here we are. Here's a liturgy for you. And if we follow that, we get the sensation of getting something, but we're not in the presence of God necessarily. Rebellion can build you know, I've done some really, really stupid things in my life, and one of the most stupid things I did was a sort of time of backsliding during my university days, which was triggered by me not getting the girl that I thought I was supposed to get. And I got so angry with God because I'd been this good Christian guy for all of my life, and I'd done everything right, and my heathen friends were getting the girls that they wanted, and I didn't get my... So I was going to make God feel bad. I was going to shame. I was going to sin a bit. So for about 18 months, I became a bit of a, well, you wouldn't have liked me. I'm so glad Sandra never met me then. She wouldn't have spent much time with me then. Never was comfortable with it. I used to arrive back in my halls of residence being particularly nasty and make my way very cautiously up the stairs to make sure I didn't fall all the way down because I wasn't often steady on my feet in that stage of time. And I'd sit in my room and I'd weep because it didn't fit me. But I was trying to show God that he had let me down. (laughs) Oh, dear. The joy of coming back to him at the end of that time is indescribable. But sometimes through rebellion and through us thinking we know better than him, I'm just so grateful that girl never worked out because I hadn't met this one yet. God knew. But sometimes we can be so rebellious. God doesn't do what we want. And we think that what we want is a good thing, and we think it's the right thing, and God doesn't, and so we build a veil. Sometimes it's ignorance. Just like if I didn't know my Mercedes could carry me to Edinburgh in great comfort, I wouldn't use it. If you don't know that you can rejoice in the presence of God, in the manifest, intimate presence of God, that's going to stop you. Arrogance? We don't need that. That's for emotionally insecure people that need all this experiential stuff of God. I'm okay just with the word. I don't need to experience God. I'll just stand by my... I'm that much more intellectually mature. And that can build a terrible veil. I don't need that from God. Guys, not only do you need that from God and I need that from God, but here's an amazing thing. God needs it from you. He wants that joy. He wants that joy. I encourage you. I encourage you to seek it. How do we respond to His presence? I just want to look at a few things that we, we can think about. When my, my children were small, we used to ration them on sweets. We only gave them sweets over the weekend. You know, people have their own ways of doing things, and we wanted to keep their sugar down. My father-in-law was a lovely man. who used to come and visit with a pocket full of sweets. And we loved him, so we let that happen. But the children would run and jump into his arms. Wonderful. And dig in his pocket. (laughs) Sometimes when I was out traveling and doing things, when I was a younger man and my children were small, I'd get home longing to see the children. And the first words were, Have you brought me a present? I want to encourage you you when you... find yourself in the manifest presence of God when you are aware of God being with you, when you decided to remove those veils, because He's not got one anymore, that the first thing we don't do, or the, that we don't have the first thing we do is being, give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that, do this, do that. Sometimes that's what happens. We're in a time of wonderful worship, and God begins to move, and we begin to feel His presence, and, and you know, as Helen said, it can be very powerful sometimes in the way that God moves. Sometimes... I'll read you some scriptures in a moment. Sometimes people can't even stand up. And sometimes our first response in those times, are, okay, God, you're here now. I know that you can do and that you can give, so give me and do. The best thing for a father coming home is when the children just run and grab him and say, I missed you, Dad. I love you, Dad. And I want to encourage you, when you turn to seek God, seek His face first before you seek His hands. Seek His face. Seek to, to bring joy to Him. Seek to interact with Him. Let's not always just begin to want to immediately flow in the power of the Holy Spirit. When God manifests, as He did when He came through the veil in Jerusalem, things do happen. God's kind of powerful. <laughs> you know, when, when Paul and Silas sing in a prison, and, and he comes down to, to fellowship with them, there's an earthquake, and the, and the chains fall off, and the doors open up, because He kind of changes things when He's around. And we need the power of God. In Corinthians, when we taught about the the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we taught about the power gifts, healing and things like that, and miracles. God wants His people to flow in those things, I believe, absolutely. But is your first reaction when you begin to sense the manifest presence of God in your life to say, okay, what can we do now? Wait, listen. Listen to what He wants. What does He want? The very best thing for you. He will always, in the situation that you're in, want the very best for you. So when God begins to speak in an intimate way into your life, take the time to listen before you start telling Him what you need doing and what He needs doing. I just want to encourage you with that. What is the consequence of spending time in the presence of God? Well, here, A, it brings joy to His heart. It brings joy to His heart to fellowship with His children. What does it do in our lives? In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, it says that we are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. When Moses was meeting with God at the time that he got the Ten Commandments given to him, he used to meet with God daily. And when he came back, his face was shining from the presence of God so much that people couldn't look at him, he had to put a veil over. It says, we're not like that. It says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, and now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. When we spend time in God's presence, when we choose to spend time in God's presence, when we fellowship with God, we become more like Him. We need to turn things around a little bit. It's a a case of priorities, and and, and I hope I can express this in a way that doesn't offend you. We are focused on evangelism as a church, because the great commission we have is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. What is the purpose of evangelism? is to bring people into a place of relationship with God. The end game is being in the presence of God. Don't be so involved in the process that you forget the end. But you'll be more effective in the process if you're more like God. The greatest evangelist that ever walked the earth was Jesus Christ. The more I become like Him the more effective I'll be in the process. But if I'm so busy trying to train myself up in my own strengths to be like Him that I'm not spending time with Him, I've got things back to front. And I think that's really profound and important for us to think about. Spending time worshipping God and being intimate with Him is not the, 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 the extra bit that we do occasionally for fun. It's, it's crucial to being the people that God needs us to be to do the work that He's left us to do on this earth. You know, think about your own children. It shocks me sometimes when I hear my son talking to somebody and I hear him giving advice that I gave him that he never seemed to take at the time to other people. He teaches at my school now, and I see him talking to pupils in the way that he was talked to by me when he was in my class. It's creepy. But I'm his dad. And he has, to an extent, modeled himself on me. I hope he's left out the bad parts, and he brings his own wonderful personality into other things. But he he knows how I respond in situations because he spent time with me. And you will know how God will respond in a situation, and you will be more effective in evangelizing and bringing people into the kingdom of God if you know intimately the person that has set that task for you. And so I want to encourage you. I just want to share with you, how do we respond? People respond in so many different ways. You know, in Chronicles it says this, When Solomon finished praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. People were forced down. The weight of the presence of God forced people onto their knees and their faces to the ground. The other situations... Peter and John pray for a man at the gate of the temple, and the presence of God heals him, and says he goes walking and leaping and praising God. Some people dance. In Acts it says, "And they prayed and the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Your response to God is going to be different depending on what he wants to achieve in your lives. The way you're going to be changed is going to be depending on what He wants to accomplish with your lives and where you're at in your life. It's not one size fits all. It's not a formula. It's not a, a, a thing you can push into a mold. My encouragement for you this morning as I finish, and we're going to share in intimately with Him as we, as we take communion together, but my encouragement is to you. I want to read one more scripture. Jesus is asked at one point, what's the most important commandment? And he was asked by uh, a teacher of the law, almost as a, a theological question, and he says this, the most important one is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Is the motivating factor in your life to love the Lord your God with all your heart? Because if you love someone with all your heart, you want to be with them and fellowship with them and talk to them and have them talk to you. The most important commandment, Jesus says, is not do this three times a day, do that five times a day, go here, study that, do that, say this, do that. The most important commandment, He says, is love the Lord your God. Have relationship, and out of that relationship, all the other things flow. He says, then treat your neighbors yourself. If we have this in our hearts and we have the example of God growing inside us as we become more like Him. We will do the things that we need to do. We'll get the equipping that we need to get. We will grow in the way that we need to go. It starts with relationship. It starts with intimacy. It starts with saying, God is not part of my life put into neatly packaged Tupperwares in different places, and He's triggered at certain times by certain things. God is my life. Interacting with God is my life. Everything else flows from that. When we begin to move in that, you know, many, many years ago, I, I studied worship for a time under a guy called Tom Ingalls. We were talking about him this morning. Scotsman who was in South Africa for a while, and then he was in San Diego, and I think he's in Australia. Now, wonderful teacher about the biblical basis of worship, and he taught about something called a lifestyle of worship. Being in a place where it doesn't take the trigger of a session of worship or a session of prayer or a miraculous happening to make us aware of God's presence, but living in a place where we choose to make ourselves aware of God's presence in the most mundane things that we do, that we are actually walking in the manifest presence of God. And one of the the better examples I've heard of someone endeavoring to do that is Jackie Pullinger, who many of you might have listened to or met. And in her book, Chasing the Dragon, she talks about the fact, and you know, she went out to her mission with no support group Wouldn't advise it for everybody, but she just felt God was telling her to go and she went. And she landed up working amongst the triad gangs and and, and the heroin addicts. And she used to walk, she said, wherever she walked, she would talk to God as if she was walking with someone physically next to her. She would just talk to God. Sometimes she'd pray with her understanding, and sometimes she'd pray in the Spirit, but she would walk and talk with God wherever she was going, and in that environment, God would just say to her, that guy over there, go and talk to him, and she'd walk over and pray for a guy, and he'd be delivered from his addictions because she was working amongst the gangs in the most miraculous way, and it came not from a great deal of theological study, and I've got nothing against that whatsoever, or a great deal of Of training as a missionary, it came from a great deal of intimacy with God. All those other things are good and we can bring those in and equipping is fantastic, but her ministry started with a great deal of intimacy with God, and that's what I encourage you to seek after. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. Let that be your departure point. Seek intimacy with Him. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's wonderful when you see someone in a great position of power and then you see their children interact with them. I don't think that William and Harry go into Her Majesty the Queen's presence crawling on their stomachs and saying, We are not worthy. I think they go in and they say, Hi, Gran, because they have a different kind of relationship with her than the rest of us, their family. That's what I'm wanting to touch your heart with this morning. I hope I've engaged your heart more than your head this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're here right now. Thank you that as we move in just a moment or so to go and break bread and share wine together, to, to thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, that you are right here in the midst of us, not just as a theory, not just as an obscure force, but as a person who loves us, as a loving Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to, to tear down, down our, our self-made veils, to, to deconstruct those things that we manufacture to give us a reason or an excuse not to be intimate with you. Because we love you, Lord. And we want to bring joy into your hearts as, as your children. We want to call you Abba Father, Daddy God. We want to know you and we want you to know us and we want to grow to be more like you as we spend time in your presence. Thank you for your great love and thank you for your grace. Amen.